Well, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews for our time of study around the Word of God. We are in Hebrews chapter 5 today, and I am going to preach Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 6 on the resume of high priests and that Christ, our Savior, has it all. No doubt you're here this afternoon and well acquainted with writing a resume. Maybe you have your own resume. Maybe your resume details the history of your employment and it has given the qualifications that you've met for a certain duty or a certain task. And it, it may include the background and your skills, maybe even some achievements and some honors that you have received. No doubt it gives information about you as you would give that resume out to those to learn about you. And some, as they are talking about a resume, might say, well, you need to keep it short and keep it direct. Others might say it needs to be a formal summary of qualifications for a certain task. You need to highlight your achievements and recap your career and recap your distinctives. It needs to set you apart from others. You're here today, and many of you have a resume. You have emailed resumes out, and you understand this. You've helped others, perhaps, sharpen their resume and and improve their resume and understand, you understand all of this, what a resume is and what a resume does. I want you to think of the passage that we're looking at today as a resume. I want you to think of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 as a resume. We're going to look at part of it today, and then we'll come to it next week in verses 7 to 10. And with all of that as introduction, verses 1 through 6, I want you to follow with me and think of this passage as the resume for high priests. Hebrews 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The passage that we're looking at today in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, is building on where we left off last week. And the reason we know that we're continuing today what we looked at last time is because in verse 1, it begins with that little word, for. And the word for means, let me explain and give a little bit more detail of what I just said. Look with me at chapter 4. Follow with me in verse 14. Therefore, 
Therefore, the, the writer says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me explain a little more. For, chapter 5 says, for every high priest, So chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, tell us the reality that we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest who has passed all the way into the heavens. And he did what you and I could never do by entering the very place of God in offering a full atonement. Something that we could never even begin to do on our own. Not only is he a great high priest who has done what we could never do by passing all the way into the heavens, verse 15, he can also sympathize with us, chapter 4 said. He can sympathize. He can relate to us. He is a man like us. He is weak like us. He has been tempted in all things like us, but without sin. For that reason, verse 16 says, let's draw near to the throne of grace. Let's come and pray to this amazing God in the throne of grace and we can receive mercy and we can receive grace to help in time of need. Now, it's almost as if chapter 5, then, is building on that. And it's the author saying, let me give you more detail." Let me clarify a little bit more. And what he's going to do is he's going to give a comparison and a contrast with all of the former priests in the Old Testament and the great high priest, Jesus. Let's look at the resume of all the high priests of old. What did they have? What did they achieve? What made them unique? And then let's compare that to Jesus. Does he qualify? Is he fit to be a high priest? Does he meet the requirements? of being a high priest that can save. Let me show you what the author is doing, by the way. We're going to look at these verses in detail, but let me give you a big picture. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, we might call it the resume or the qualifications of high priests. And then beginning in verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 8, we have a warning. It's almost like, look at who Jesus is and look at the resume and the qualifications and how he is perfectly fit for the job. But you better be warned. If you're going to live in sin and you're going to reject this high priest, there no longer is a sacrifice for you. That's a warning. That's a warning. Chapter 6 is going to bring that out. And then we come to the end of chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, and there's a great comfort. So after the warning, and it's a stern warning, there is great comfort in chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And then we come to chapter 7, and there's a deep theological study on this figure, this man, this character named Melchizedek. Why all of this? Why are we going to look at all of this in detail? And why does the author compile it this way? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. 
Chapter 6, verse 1, leaving the elementary teaching about the Messiah, let us press on to maturity. That's what the author wants. He's a pastor. He loves the church. And he says, I want us to press on to maturity. So don't sit here today and think, I know he's my high priest. I've been there. No, no, no. He wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. We can all grow in our godliness, in our knowledge of Christ, and in our likeness to Christ. So chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, what's the point of all of this? Grow. Let us press on to maturity. These wonderful chapters that we're going to be in for probably a number of months is going to show us that the priesthood of Jesus is superior. He is superior Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. Jesus is infinitely great because he is eternal. He is divine. He is saving. He brings in the new covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God. He is forgiving. He is the complete Savior. He is the divinely appointed Savior. He's compassionate. He's tender. He's merciful and sufficient. That's My sermon outline for the next year probably is what we're going to look at. That's Hebrews 5 to 10, all of that. That's why we have to focus on him. That's why we have to consider him. That's why we have to fix our attention upon this one so that we can press on to maturity. Pause real quick. I'm going to say it at the conclusion, but let me say it again now. I think one of the greatest ways that you and I, Christian, can grow in our Christian walk is by a deeper, a steady, and a consistent and growing love for Jesus. Let me put it negatively. One of the ways that you prevent backsliding, one of the ways that you resist growing lukewarm in the faith, how do you not do that? By cultivating a vibrant knowledge and love of Christ. Hebrews is going to show us that. Hebrews is not just, here's 24 commands of things for you to do, although there are commands and we'll get there. Before all of that, it's look at the great priest. Look at who he is and gaze upon him and be astonished at who he is and what he's accomplished for all of his people. So in chapter five, we are going to study the priesthood together. We're going to look at the resume of high priests. What do they have? The accomplishments, the achievements. And then simply, I want you to know that Christ has it all. Whatever a high priest had to have to be qualified in the Old Testament time, guess what? Jesus has it all. Is he qualified to be your savior? Is he fit to be your savior? Is he able to be your savior? Is he really divinely appointed and sufficient to bring you all the way to God? Our chapter and the ones after will say, yes, he is. Absolutely. Why is this important? Why is this important? As I was telling one of the children here before service began, I was telling them this is so important because, listen, you can never bring yourself to God. That's why the section is so important. You can't bring yourself to God, but Christ the priest can. You can't atone for your own sins, but Christ the high priest can. 
You are weak and powerful. You're not an eternal priest. You're not qualified to be priest. Neither am I. But Jesus is. So rest in him. Trust in him. Hope in him. So as we look in this together today, verses 1 to 7, I want to give you two very simple headings, and I want to spend a little bit of time on the first and more time on the second. Here are the two main points that I want to give you from verses 1 to 4. I want you first to learn about the former priests. Learn. We're going to understand what, what was the resume of a high priest of old. So, so if you and I were understanding what is a high priest and, and where did he come from and what did he have to do and what were his marks and what were his qualifications and what is it that set him apart? We're going to look at that as we learn about the former priests. But then I want you to see number two with me. I want you to love the final priest. I don't want you to just learn the former priest. I want you to love the final priest, the Lord Jesus himself. So let's begin with number one. I want you to learn about the former high priests in verses one through four. These verses bring out the qualifications, the summarization of the high priest. One historian in the 1800s said this about the priesthood. The priesthood was a fraternity. It was a fraternity fenced around with irremovable barriers, meaning you couldn't, you couldn't shift it. You couldn't change it. They were, they were unable to be moved because they had been fixed forever by natural descent. You had to come from the line of Levi and from the family of Aaron. That was fixed. That was what God had designed. So you and I couldn't just show up at the door of the seminary of the priesthood and say, hey, I want to be a priest. You know, I feel the call of God on my life and I really want to do this. And they'd say, are, are, are you from the right pre- uh, line? Do you have the right family? Are you, are you from the right lineage? Well, no, sorry, you're not qualified. Not anybody was fit to be a priest. We have to learn about the former priests. These opening four verses are going to give us three qualifications. Meaning if you and I were looking at a resume, he would say, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's where I've been. Here's my accomplishment. Three things. Number one, he had to be a man. He had to be a man. And we see that right here in verse one. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Now, that's important because an angel doesn't qualify to be your mediator. There's no divine revelation. There's no dream. There's no angelic messenger that would ever qualify to bring you savingly to God. No statue can do it. No incense, no bells and rituals can bring you to God. Not a good work can bring you to God. Not a ceremony. Not even AI can bring you to God. But he had to be a man. He had to be a man. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Take your Bible and just flip back a page or so to the end of chapter 2, Hebrews 2. Let me show you how he had to be a man. Hebrews 2, 17. 
Verse 17, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like you. And then later on in chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So the qualification of the priest, first, he had to be a man. He had to be taken from the people in order to represent the people before God. Aren't you thankful? That right now, in heaven, the throne of God, there is a man representing you. By the way, you have an accuser. He's called in Revelation the accuser of the brethren. He knows you and hates you. And he's accusing you before the throne. But aren't you thankful that you have a man representing you? You have a sufficient and a qualified man representing you. Jesus Christ. So not only was he a man, let me give you a second qualification. If we're looking at this resume, what does a high priest have? Where has he been? What are his achievements? Number one, he's a man. Number two, he's compassionate. He's compassionate. Because we see in verse 1 and 2 that he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins, and he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself is beset with weaknesses. He's compassionate. You see, one of the primary jobs of a priest, I mean, that what, which made him a priest was that he had to offer sacrifices. That's the end of verse 1. He had to offer gifts and sacrifices. There were bloody and there were non-bloody sacrifices. There were sacrifices that made atonement for sin and there were sacrifices of, of fellowship and communion and thanksgiving to God that Leviticus 1-7 to talks about. Now, many of them were gifts to God, expressing thanks and desiring fellowship, and that's what the priest would do. He was appointed from men on behalf of men to offer sacrifices for sins and offer gifts to God. But look at verse 2. Not only was he just someone who would offer sacrifices, he was compassionate. Do you see in your Bible, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. The King James has a good translation here. He has compassion on the ignorant and misguided. This word, deal gently, speaks of treating with care instead of severity. Don't you want a priest like that? He's going to treat you with care instead of severity. Guess what? Because I mess up a lot. And so do you. And yet, aren't we thankful that, that just like the priests of old, there is this important mark of dealing gently, of, of, of compassionate gentleness. So a true priest could not be tough. He couldn't be severe. He couldn't be heavy-handed. But he had to be tender. Why? Because he himself was a weak man, just like the people are. That's what verse 2 says. Because he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And he would offer sacrifices for sins. And he would do that work in a compassionate way. 
By the way, all of this brings us at the end of verse two. We see it right here. He deals gently with the ignorant and misguided. There's a little bit of humiliation toward us because that means that we are part of the verse two, ignorant and misguided. We need a high priest. Sorry if that boosts your ego, but that's the truth of what the Bible says. We're all ignorant and we're all misguided. The word misguided in the Greek here means we're straying, we're wayward. We would not run to God. We could not run to God on our own. We're ignorant. We're straying from God. And yet the, the, the high priest is a compassionate man who would help those in need. If we're looking at the resume, what does the high priest have? If he says, here's who I am, here's what I've done, I'm a man, number one. Had to be compassionate, number two. But get this, number three, if you're taking notes, he had to be appointed. He had to be appointed. He didn't just pick and choose if he was going to be a high priest. He couldn't just pick and choose if he was going to do the services in the temple. He couldn't just pick and choose if he was going to do what God called him to do in that priestly line. No, you had to be appointed by God. That's what verse 1 says at the end. He was appointed on behalf of men, and we see it in verse 4. No one takes the honor to himself, but he receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. This is an office. Every priest had the office of humility and service. The, the priest couldn't have pride. He couldn't be full of ambition. He wasn't a self-appointed man. He, he wasn't a man that, that uh, didn't, he didn't appoint himself. He didn't apply for the seminary of the priesthood and say, hey, I think I'm called for this. Let me in and get the degree. He didn't just show up and say, hey, I really want to do this. No, he had to be appointed by God. Now, by the way, maybe a little summary can be helpful for all of us. How did someone become a priest and how were they appointed a priest? Well, remember the priesthood came from the tribe of Levi, one of Jacob's 12 sons. We read about this in Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 to 7. The priests came from the tribe of Levi and Levi himself had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And each of the family lines of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, they all had particular roles in the service to God and the worship of God and the articles of worship and setting up and constructing and preparing and washing and all the different ways that worship was to be done. Numbers chapter 3 gives all the detail on that. But the priesthood, though, the high priesthood, it came through Moses' brother Aaron, and it was his family that made up the high priesthood. So if you weren't from the family of Aaron, if you weren't from the lineage of Aaron, you couldn't be a high priest. Leviticus 8 to 10 makes that very clear. He had to be appointed. Let me just read for you what Exodus 28 Verse 1. Here's what God says to Moses. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him. For from among the sons of Israel, they must minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. 
At the end of Exodus chapter 28, verse 41, God said, You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them, and you shall ordain them and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Who's doing all that appointing work? God is. God is. God is the one who appoints the priests. By the way, I think we all know there were times in the Bible when people tried to usurp the role of priesthood and it didn't go well for them. Remember that? One of them was King Saul in the Old Testament. King Saul, he offered a sacrifice because he was impatient, didn't wait for the prophet Samuel in First. Uh, Samuel chapter 13, and he was judged by God. Also, we think of the man Korah, uh, Korah who wanted to be priest, and he was swallowed up by the earth in Numbers chapter 16. Or even King Uzziah is a third example who went himself into the temple to offer incense, and he was struck immediately with leprosy until the day of his death in Second Chronicles Chapter 26. So don't do that. Nobody can just sort of wiggle their way into the office of priesthood. He had to be appointed by God. Let's come back to it. The, The resume of a priest. As we consider what a former priest was like, what were they? What did they do? What did they achieve? What were their accomplishments? Had to be a man. Had to be compassionate. And they had to be appointed. That's Verses 1 to 4. Every high priest had to fit that. So then we're left with this question. Well, does Jesus fit that? Is Jesus qualified? Is Jesus able to represent me and bring me to God? Write down, if you would, number two in your outline. If the first was learn about the former priest, number two, let me give you this heading, and it's this. I want you to love the final priest. Because the answer that we're going to see today in verses five and six is that Jesus meets all of those qualifications. Jesus is appointed. Jesus is a man. Jesus is compassionate. So he's able and qualified to be the best, the final, the supreme, your glorious high priest. Skip down to verse 9. Look at Hebrews 5 verse 9. Having been made perfect, we'll talk about what that means next week. I think it means complete in his sufferings and work. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So this one is qualified. He is able to be your priest and the source of your eternal salvation. So we're talking about the priesthood of Jesus. Let's pause and zoom out for a sec. The very fact that I and you need a priest shows a couple of things, four of them to be specific. It shows our weakness. It shows our weakness. Contrary to popular opinion and popular belief, man cannot come to God on his own. You know that, you've heard it, you read it in the Bible, it is preached week by week here, but hear it again. Man is unable to come to God on his own. That's why you need a priest. That's why you need the great high priest. Because we're weak. Number two, 
It also shows the heinousness of our sin. The heinousness of our sin. Because sin is an affront to God. I can't just come to God any way I want, however I want, on my terms. My sin is so bad. My sin is so great. My sin is so offensive to God. God had to take action with the high priest that he appointed to deal with our sin. So the fact that we need a priest shows our weakness. It shows the heinousness of our sin. Third, it shows the reality of our estrangement from God. Our estrangement from God. Here's what that means. We are born automatically at war with God. Or maybe more accurately, we are born automatically in a state where God is at war with us. The fact that we need a priest to bring us to God, it shows that we are estranged from God. We are at enmity with God. And the very fact that we need a priest shows forth. It shows the grace of God. It shows the grace of God because guess what? God takes action in love. He takes action in love to rescue us. Now, if your Bible is open to Hebrews 5, we've looked at verses 1 to 4. Now, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10 in the original Greek is amazingly awesome to study. The literary, the rhetorical, the word plays, the structure, it's beyond profound. Profound. But the way that the author structures verses 1 to 10 is in such a way that the mountain peak, the highest point, the emphatic section is right here, verses 5 and 6. That's why we're going to look at only these two verses today, and then we're going to come back to it next week for verses 7 to 10. Because verses 5 and 6 answer the question, is Jesus qualified? Oh, yes. Yes, he is, because here's the answer. He's appointed by God. He's appointed by God. Now, in the time that we have that remains, I want to show you a number of ways that Jesus reveals his glory. I don't want you to just merely have some head knowledge. I want your heart to be drawn and tugged in love to the Savior. Okay, so write this down. Number one, he is appointed because he's humble. He's humble. Jesus is humble. Verse five, so also Christ. Just like the high priests of old and all that they had, so also Christ, he did not glorify himself. Jesus did not take the appointment upon himself. I mean, ponder the humility of Jesus for a minute. Ponder the beauty of Jesus in his humility that he does not push himself forward and say, I'm the one. In John chapter 8, verse 54, he said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. 
You see, what what made the Son of God so glorious in his ministry was that he was so committed with intense singleness of purpose for the glory of the Father. Oh, he was appointed by God, yes, and we'll get there in a minute. But he was so intensely committed to the glory of the Father. Jesus said in John John 12, verse 28, Father, Father, glorify your name. I mean, Jesus' office bearing as a priest was the farthest thing from self-glorification. Let let me be the only high priest. He didn't do that. You know, if this was true of Christ, it ought to be true of ministers of the gospel as well. I mean, just in a human parallel, a human application, what's worse than having a a man in leadership put himself forward for a prestigious opportunity and say, I'm the one. For a man who's seeking his own agenda, for the man who has a plan that he has to accomplish, for a man who's self-appointed, for a man who boasts in himself, for a man who boasts in his own deeds, there's nothing worse than that. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, John 8, verse 50, Jesus said, I seek not my own glory. That's true of our great high priest, and that ought to be true of all of those who serve him as well. By the way, let's not forget Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this attitude be in yourselves, which was in Christ. Not glorifying ourselves, not driven by selfish ambition, but driven by humility. See it in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself. He didn't do that. He came to glorify the Father. So number one, if you're taking notes, he was humble. He was humble. But note this, number two, in your outline, and this is really kind of the main point of verses five and six, he's appointed. Number two, he's appointed. God the Father appointed Jesus to the task of high priest. He didn't usurp the role. He didn't take the honor to himself, but he is appointed and commissioned by the Father. He was appointed by God to do the work. In verse 5, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son. And again in verse 6, he says in another passage, you are a priest forever. Can I just dwell on that for one more minute? It's easy to find self appointed people, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to find people that are self-appointed, self-driven, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting, selfishly ambitious. It's easy to find that in the world. It's really easy to find that. They appoint themselves. They surround themselves with yes-men, leaders who are like them, and they take little or no advice from anyone else. They kind of have a self-driven attitude. You know, God appointed me. Who are you to doubt me and doubt the call of God on my life? That's everywhere in Christian popularity circles, but it ought not to be. Our job is to follow Christ. He was appointed Appointed by God. He didn't glorify himself, but he was humble and he was appointed. Well, what is the author going to do now? 
What, what, is the, what is the key that is going to drive this home? Now, for the time that remains, we're going to look at the rest of verse 5 and verse 6 at two scriptures where God the Father is talking to God the Son, and he's appointing him to the role that he will accomplish. So if you're taking notes, you wrote down, number one, that the Savior is humble. He is humble. You wrote down, number two, he is appointed. Here's the third and fourth. He is the king, and he is the priest. Verse five tells us that God the Father said to him in verse 5, now a quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I want you to take your Bible and let's take the time and do this. I think it'd be appropriate. Turn all the way back with me to Psalm 2. Now, as you're turning to Psalm 2, let me give you a little background. David wrote this, a thousand years before Jesus would be born. David the king wrote this, but he wrote it about another king, a greater king who would come. It's not David the man, it's a greater David who would come. And Psalm 2 begins by saying, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? The the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And here's what the world is saying. Let's tear their fetters apart. We hate this God. We hate this Jesus. Let's tear off all their chains and their fetters and all of their authority. We're living in a world like that. Look at how God responds in verse 4. The Lord is sitting in the heaven. He's laughing. It's a laughing of derision. Why? Who are you and who do you think you are to laugh at my power and my plan and my authority and my divinely appointed Messiah? Verse 5, God will speak to the nations in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then David in verse 7, it's almost like you and I and David, we get to peek into, we get to eavesdrop on an inter-Trinitarian conversation. I mean, check this out. What does God the Father say to God the Son? Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Here's what he says. He said to me. It's, It's the words of Messiah, the Son. He said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten me. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 2 is the divinely appointed king. Jesus is the king. He is appointed by God. There's a special relationship. You are my son, the author quotes back in Hebrews 5. You are my son. Why that? Because of the special relationship, because of the particular love, the supreme love that God the Father has for this son, Jesus. You are my son, my beloved son. And I have begotten you. Begotten you, meaning that this son is the unique, unrivaled, 
unparalleled one in his cross work, in his bodily victorious resurrection, when he ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God, he is begotten. He is the unique, the unrivaled one who is worthy of all worship. Back to it. Is he qualified? Is he appointed? Does Jesus meet the qualification to be priest and king and savior and Messiah? Absolutely. Proof number one from Psalm 2. He is the king. And he received his appointment as king from the very lips of God the Father. The Father is well-pleased with the Son. The Father's peculiar, particular, preeminent love is for his Son. And so Jesus didn't glorify himself. He didn't usurp this role. He's not a self-appointed priest. God said to him, you are my Son. You are my, the one who will be Savior and King and Priest. That's what Psalm 5 Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 is pointing back to. But if you're in Psalm 2, flip over with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And the reason we need to turn here is because this is where the very next verse leads us in the book of Hebrews. Right? Hebrews said, Jesus did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then verse 6, he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You have your Bible open to Psalm 110. David wrote this. And David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus ever came around. Psalm 110 is the most often quoted Old Testament passage anywhere in the New Testament. All the writers of the New Testament knew Psalm 110. They understood Psalm 110. They knew that it was looking ahead to a future king priest. We all know verse 1, don't we? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But now look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, meaning God has a decree, a covenant, a plan, and God will never go back on his word. What is it? Verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What's the point of this? God appointed this one, listen, to be an eternal priest. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Ithamar, Eleazar, they weren't eternal. They all died. And then their sons became priests and high priests. But yet God has made a decree. God has made a promise that this one, the Son of God, is a forever priest. They all had their day and then they died. But not Christ. He has no successor. There are none after him that are priests like him. 
He is a priest of a, of a totally new order. He is a priest of a totally new kind. He is a priest of a totally new law. He is a priest of a totally new covenant. That's what it means, according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 will teach us much more about that man, Melchizedek. This Jesus is an eternal priest. He is eternal. Now, here, here's how amazing this is, that, that if Jesus continues to be our king to govern us, and he does so forever, this is as long as he continues as our priest to intercede for us. That should be hugely encouraging for us. He is our eternal king, and he is our eternal priest. Now, you might be thinking, okay, 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 he's our priest, I get it, I've heard it. But that means that he offers eternal intercession, eternal love, eternal merits, eternal grace, eternal forgiveness, eternal security. Eternal reconciliation. It's all eternal because we have an eternal king. We have an eternal priest. He's appointed by the Father, and Jesus is that eternal one whose priesthood never, ever, ever ends. And it all came by the authoritative appointment from God the Father. Who else qualifies? Who else could turn in their resume and say, let me be high priest after that? No one. Every qualification that a high priest had in former times, Jesus has it all. He he meets it all. And if you have your Bible, go back to Hebrews 5, because I want to show you one specific thing in Hebrews 5, verses 5 and 6 as well. There's a clear reference to the divine inspiration of Scripture. In Hebrews 5, verse 5, it says, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, and then he's going to quote the Bible. Notice God the Father said to God the Son, and he quotes the Bible. What does that mean? Every word from the Bible is the spoken word of the Father. Same thing in verse 6, just as he, God, says in another passage. When you and I are reading the Bible, it is God speaking. God speaking. Church family, this is the ultimate resume. It's the ultimate resume that he alone is qualified for the position. He's qualified. So what's the position? What's the position that you need? Boys and girls, men and women, what's the position that we need? Well, the position, I need someone to forgive my sin. I need someone to open the door for me to get into heaven. I need someone to represent me before the eyes of an all-knowing and piercingly holy God. I need someone to bring me to God because I can't do it. You can't obtain it. You don't have the credentials. You don't have the qualifications. Neither do I. We are unable to meet any of those requirements. 
but Jesus meets them all. If you hear anything today from Hebrews 5, it's this. There's only one who is fit and qualified and appointed by God to be your Savior. And he is Jesus Christ. But I have to ask. I have to ask. Verses 1 to 6 teach us about the final priest, Jesus. But is he your priest? Has he died for you? Have you confessed your sin? Have you drawn near to this Savior? Do you trust in him alone? By trusting in him means you have to turn your back on all that you could ever give to God by your own good works. Do you renounce and reject all of your own goodness? Have you been reconciled to God today? Are you here today free from condemnation? Are are you here today clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ? Are, Are you guaranteed heaven's glory? Not because of you doing something to get that door open, but because of what the priest has done for you. Has that happened to you? Has Christ died for you and purchased you and liberated you? And are you living for him and trusting in him? And bearing fruit for him. And not just loving the benefits that he gives. But loving the priestly beauty that he is. Why is all of this important? I mean, why does the author of Hebrews go here in chapter 5? I mean, he's already talked about how we have a, a great high priest and he's passed through the heavens and we can come to the throne of grace. I mean, why all the detail? And I think one of the answers, I mentioned it at the beginning, but now let me say it again. This is the great solution. This is the great protection against all backsliding. This is the great protection against spiritual apathy. This is the protection against drifting from Christ. You're here and you think, oh, I just feel so distant from God. Well, maybe the, the, the fact that you're here, you need to hear verses 1 to 6 again and draw near to Christ as your priest afresh. What is that great solution? To have an increasingly intimate knowledge of Christ. To study him. To know him. To love him. To live for him. To worship him. He gave his all for you. He requires nothing less than for you and I who trust in him to give our all for him. May we have that personal knowledge of Jesus. May may we grow in that intimate knowledge of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is humble. He is compassionate. He is a man. He is one who is appointed by God. He is the king. He is the priest. Let's worship and honor and praise him. We need a priest. We're weak. Tonight when we go to bed, we're weak. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're weak. 
all throughout the week, we are weak and unable to bring ourselves to God. May these words be a strong encouragement to you, written by J. Wilbur Chapman in the 1800s. He said, Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he, my strength, my victory wins. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, and loving, he is with me to the end. Praise the Lord that we have a great high priest. Let's pray.